Father, we pray that you would help me explain this clearly. Help me to explain this as the minister of a church full of the kind of stuff that Romans here addresses. Help us to listen. Help us, those of us who are Christians, to find reassurance and comfort in our pain. And help those, Lord, who are not yet convinced Christians to listen for that effectual call of God, calling them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that call is heard, we pray that by God's grace they would indeed respond. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now, last week we speeded up a bit in Romans 8 and took a larger chunk. This week we slow down with a few verses, 26 to 30. They are the powerful verses, and you will agree, having read them with me. According to John Piper, whose material I have relied on more than anybody else in preaching in Romans 8, verses 26 and 27 are the hardest two verses in Romans 8 to understand. And then verses 28, 29, and 30 are the most insensitively verses preached often in Romans 8. So there you go. There are my two challenges today, clarity and sensitivity. Romans 8, uh, 28 is uh, in the top five most often quoted verses. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You will uh, see and understand what he means by how often Romans 8, 28 is spoken insensitively. It is a striking statement It is a strong statement that runs the risk, perhaps, of being quoted without real understanding of what it means. These verses need wrestling with, not superficiality. I was uh, struck and continue to be struck by the number of questions and comments and emails and letters you send me about Romans 8. What struck me after the first service was there was a big queue of people to speak to. They're all doctors. All doctors, I think, who wrestle in the world of this kind of stuff and the kind of issues that Paul talks about here. Now, the overall title you'll see on the service sheet, God helps us as we groan in hope for glory. God helps us as we groan in hope for glory. The context of Romans 8, just before these verses, Paul has been explaining his experience as a Christian that resonates certainly with mine and I'm sure with yours, that we groan as we journey through this world. We groan, we groan, but in hope and longing and waiting for glory. Now, the first point you'll see on the sheet, in our weakness and perplexity, the indwelling spirit helps us. In our weakness and perplexity, the indwelling spirit helps us. In Romans 8, Paul's purpose is to reassure the Christian that the gospel is true. And he does that in two ways. One, he explains it. And two, he explains it at the the coalface of real life. And that is such an important thing for us to be assured in, that if the gospel is not credible in the most complex and difficult situations of our lives, the gospel is not true. 
The gospel in Romans is explained in the context of groaning and perplexity and confusion and pain. And that is perhaps for me as I've preached on Romans 8 the most striking and helpful thing about it as a chapter that it speaks the gospel in the face of real life. I was teaching on Romans 8 uh, this past week to a group of students and uh, one of them, uh, uh, I said to them halfway through the lecture, do you understand what I'm saying? And this boy put his hand up and he said, no. But what I can tell you is that what I read here in Romans is a perfect description of my life. That's striking. Which uh, my throwback to him was, you've understood perfectly what I've been saying. That's exactly right. Romans 8 is a description of real life. We groan. We hope. We wait patiently. Now, that's the context. Let's look at verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, what does Paul mean here by our weakness? He doesn't mean that the Spirit helps us when we are having one of these struggling days in our Christian life. He doesn't say the Spirit helps us when we are in a weak phase in our Christian life, or the Spirit helps Christians who are weak Christians. That's not what he is saying. Weakness. What he means by weakness is just how most of life is for us as Christians, and it's into that realm that the Holy Spirit helps us. What is weakness? Well, the word that Paul uses means primarily physical pain and suffering. Sickness, illness, whether physical or mental, whether psychological, or whatever the realm of physical pain and suffering, that's what Paul means by this word, our weakness, our frailty, our frail bodies, whether ourselves or as we look on and observe that in others. That's what weakness means. It embraces also, I guess, the whole range of anxiety, fear, worry. It also embraces the suffering we experience because we are Christians. The, the, the suffering of simply that comes with the territory of being a Christian. Somebody shared with me an interesting perspective uh, this past week. Uh, as Christians mindful of our eternal life, our true home, our uh, the place that God has made us for, saved us for, the world that we are destined for, for 10,000 times, 10,000 years, is home. You know, you ask people, where do you live? I think, I'm not sure which way around it is. In Glasgow, you say, where do you live? In Edinburgh, you say, where's your home? Or the other way around. But, but in many ways, we say the house we live in, I guess, or where we're from, but, but for the Christian, home is not here. Home is there. Home is eternity. And here we are aliens and strangers, and we're odd ones out, and we're a bit different, and we come together on Sunday mornings, and we do the most astonishing things. We stand up, and we sing, my body might be dying, but I'll always be alive. What kind of stuff is that? It's different, isn't it? It's fine when we're in here singing that kind of stuff, but what about when we're out there? We were thinking on Tuesday night at our elders meeting Wednesday night about the teenagers in our church. They really do feel like strangers in the playground today. They really do. 
And so what Paul means by weakness is all that comes with living with a dying body in a dying world that doesn't trust Jesus. All that comes from living with a dying body in a dying world, living as a clear Christian in a world, certainly are part of the world that is largely indifferent, even hostile to the gospel. That's weakness. So what does Paul mean by we do not know what to pray for? Well, I think he means exactly what he says. So, for example, when somebody is ill, suffering, perhaps terminally ill, what should we pray for them? Should we pray that they be healed? Should we pray that by God's grace they be given strength to endure, to persevere, to have patience in their pain and their suffering? What should we pray? As a minister, a pastor to a family of real people, you, I find myself often perplexed to know what to pray for. And what of Christians who are suffering for their faith in other parts of the world? What do we pray for Christians in Nigeria and Syria? Do we pray that God would deliver them out of their situation of suffering or persecution? Or do we pray that God would grant to them endurance and distinctiveness and that their testimony and their courage would lead people to faith in Jesus? What do we pray? Oftentimes we do not know what to pray for others or in our own lives. Let me encourage you that in these times, particularly in your life personally or as you look on at suffering in others' lives, let me encourage you to keep on praying, even with stumbling words to God. It's so easy for us just to dry up in our praying. Even say to God, I do not know what to pray for. I do not understand. Why is this happening? Groan to him. Speak to your father. Speak to your dad. It's the language of Paul in Romans 8. And there are times in our Christian lives when we just cannot pray. There are for me, certainly. For me, it's a kind of habitual pattern. The most keenly my experience of weakness the least keen I am in praying. Sure, I'm not alone. Apparently, there are circumstances when somebody who is parched with thirst cannot drink. Although their desperate need is to drink, they need help to drink. And there are times in our Christian lives when we desperately need to pray, to pour out our hearts to our Father, to groan to God, and our mouths and our souls are dry. That is real life. In our weakness, we do not know what to pray for. But notice with me how the verse begins. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. In our weakness and our perplexity and confusion, the indwelling Spirit helps us. Let me just uh, underscore in the heading the word indwelling. In our weakness, in our perplexity, there is help at hand. When you use a phrase like, there is help at hand, you think the help is over there. You dial 999 to get it. I warned you not to go on to NHS 24 last week because it's so depressing. But you can get help from that. 
You dial 999 to get help. Help is over there. Help is at hand. For you as a Christian, the help is inside of you. It's in the family you are in. The Holy Spirit lives in you. The indwelling Spirit helps you by praying inside of you, for you. According to the will of God. Now that's the second point on the sheet. How does the indwelling Spirit help us? The indwelling Spirit helps us by praying for us according to the will of God. Verse 26, read again, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, that just means prays for us, with groanings too deep for words. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, Christians, according to the will of God. The indwelling Spirit helps us by praying for us, in us, according to the will of God for us. Now, in what context does the Spirit pray for us? By that I mean, why is the Spirit praying for us? And the answer to that is because of our weakness, because we are suffering, because we do not know what to pray for, because we are groaning, because it matters to God, because He's kind, He's compassionate and caring. The Spirit prays for us because we need help. We're suffering. Now, when Paul says the Spirit himself prays for us with groanings too deep for words, whose are the groanings? My Bible commentators take about five pages then to time out to work out who are the groanings. The danger of that is by the time you get back to where you were, you've forgotten that you're up there with a chalk face of real life. Who are the groanings? Are the groanings the Holy Spirit's, or are the groanings mine and yours, or both? Now, I think probably the groanings are ours. The, the, the translation there doesn't quite get the, 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 the structure of the Greek. I think probably the groanings are ours, and as we groan, the Spirit is praying for us. So when you groan, when you groan in life, the Holy Spirit or God doesn't look at you groaning and then come to your rescue. As you groan, the Holy Spirit is praying in some kind of mysterious way. As you groan, the Spirit is praying. Or even as the Spirit prays, you groan. And when our groanings are too deep for words, times when we cannot even pray, the Spirit is praying and helping us. Now, it's hard to know exactly what Paul means precisely by who is groaning. What we do know for sure, though, is that we groan. We know that, don't we? And what we do know for sure is that the Spirit prays right into the heart of our growing, our weakness, our suffering, our pain, our tears, bears them. I think bearing is a better word than sharing. It's bearing them. And what does he pray for us, the Spirit, in our weakness? Well, the principle is at the end of verse 27. Look at that with me. The Spirit intercedes for the saints, prays for Christians according to the will of God. The Spirit prays for us according to the will of God for us. And for one thing, that means the Spirit knows exactly what to pray for. We don't know what to pray for but the Spirit knows exactly what to pray for. Now, the key question I think that Romans 8 asks here is, 
What is the will of God for the Christian? What is the will of God for you as a Christian? If you've asked that question, what is the will of God for my life? What is God's plan for my life? What is the will of God for your life and mine? That the Spirit of God is praying according to. Well, verse 28 is the will of God for your life as a Christian. What's verse 28 say? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. The will of God is that all things work together for our good. That's the heart of the verse. What does it mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that for a Christian there is a silver lining in every cloud in life. It doesn't mean, for example, that if I don't have a job, then God will have a better job for me down the track. He might not. He might have it in his will that you never work again. He might. Now, the key to understanding verse 28 is to understand what the word good means. What is this good that Paul talks about that all things work together for? What is this good? Well, our intuition is to, is to think that when Paul says something that is hard to understand, he then goes on to tell us what it means. And what good means, Paul explains in verses 29 to 30. Verses 29 to 30 define what this good is that all things work together for. And I've set it down as a, a kind of separate heading on the sheet. But really verses 28, 29, and 30 all run as a one. Together, they describe the will of God for our lives. The will of God that the Spirit is praying according to is that all things work together for our good. What is that good? Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And you'll see on the sheet that I've summarized 29 and 30 like this. Our good is to be conformed to the image of Jesus and brought home to glory. So take it all together, 28, 29, and 30. What is the will of God for your life and mine? What is the answer to the question, what is God's will for my life? What is God's purpose for my life? Well, the will of God for you and me, if you are a Christian, is that all things work together for our good, which is to be conformed to the image of Jesus and brought home to glory. That's the will of God for your life, if you're a Christian. That all things work together for your good, which is you being conformed to the image of Jesus, which means ultimately your glorification when you will be fully like him and live with him and worship him in glory. Now, when I preach these words to you as your minister, all over this room and at the other service, I catch the eye of people whose lives raise the question... All things? Is that really true? We have a funeral on Monday. 
Yesterday, there was another funeral in the city of one of my colleagues who I trained with in ministry. She died aged 39, having had cancer for just a few months. Is it true that all things work together for the good that is to make us like Jesus and bring us home to glory? Paul says, yes, all things, positive or negative, sweet or bitter, pleasurable or painful. God will work, Paul says, all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me ask the hardest question of all. How can bitter things, how can suffering work according to the will of God, which is to see you conform to the image of Jesus and brought home to glory? Well, suffering can mold us, can shape us, can refine us, into the image of Jesus. Suffering can produce in us hope. Now, even as I say that out loud, I just feel that there is a a kind of disjunction between God and you, and that's me. But I can say to you as a pastor, as a minister, that is what I see. Some of you whom I caught your eye a few minutes ago and and I kind of got into my mind your situations of all things when I said just now that is what as a pastor I see the same people nodded to me and that is true. It is true. Or it can display to others the glory of Christ. It can point people to Jesus as they see our patient endurance. Even the darkest valleys, even death, is under the sovereign control of God, for it will bring us home to glory. See, take the most extreme circumstance of life that causes us to feel our weakness, which is walking through the valley of the shadow of death and death itself. Whose is death in the end? It is God's, because death itself, the last enemy, will not have the victory over what? Over the will of God, which is what? To conform us into the image of Jesus Christ and bring us safely home to glory. What will death do to you in the end? It will kill your dying body and you will be given a living resurrection body and you will be like the image of Jesus and live in an everlasting glory with him, safely home to glory. So how can all things work together for our good? Even death can. Even death can. Here's a cross-set reference from earlier in Romans. I was reading these words this morning. And I think it uh, takes uh, a lifetime in the Christian life to really feel these, or I'm not sure we ever truly will. When I was with Bertie yesterday, uh, whose widow, who's been widowed and who will bury his wife tomorrow, last uh, week when I was with him, she died last Sunday, um, he said to me that God had given, me, given him permission now to die. And I said, well, not yet, Bertie. You've got to wait till next Monday. Yesterday he said to me, God has given me patience to wait. And he, he said to me, you know, he, he exhibited to me 
joy, in terms of what the Bible means by joy, real joy, hope and suffering, comfort for where she is. So Paul says in Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let me take just a moment at this point to pause and to draw a distinction which I hope will be helpful between what we know and what we do know. So what do we know about all this stuff that we face in life and the will of God for us, which is to make us like Jesus and bring us home to glory? What do we know about all that stuff and what do we not know? What we know, verse 28, is that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. We know what that good is, which is that we be conformed to the image of Jesus and brought to glory. That is what we know as Christians, that all things, good and hard things, under the sovereignty of God, work together for our good, that we be made like Jesus and brought to glory. That is what we know. What we do not know is exactly how, under God's sovereignty, all things work together for our good. We do not know exactly why God, in His sovereignty, conforms us to the image of His Son in the ways and the circumstances He does. We do not know exactly why God brings us home to glory on the road He does. But we do know that all things work together to conform us into the likeness of his Son that will see us one day fully like him, glorified, in glory, safely home. And you and I must hold on to what we know and not what we do not know. And we must, as we hold on to what we know, ask for God's grace to give us, Romans 8, verse 25, patience in relation to seeing God's will unfold in our lives. If we cannot understand why we are on a particularly difficult stretch of the road to glory, We cannot see why, but we know. You see how Paul introduces these verses. We know that all things in God's sovereignty are part of his purpose to conform us to the likeness of his Son and get us home to glory. Now, in the last few minutes of our time, before we come to, very appropriately, the Lord's table and communion, I want to focus on two phrases in Paul's text. Both of them you'll see in verse 28, the bookends. The bookends of verse 28. 
And we know that for those who love God, that's the first phrase, those who love God. The second phrase is at the end of verse 28, for those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called by God, that phrase about the call of God is repeated twice in verse 30. See there, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. Around this hardest of all phrases in Romans 8, all things work together for their good. And you know what good means now? Conformity to Jesus and bringing home to glory. All things work together for good. That's a a hard verse to understand, given our experience, given our finite minds, given that we're grappling with that verse and what it means this side of eternity, given that we're grappling to understand that verse when we're far from home. So what are the two bookends around that phrase? Those who love God and are called by God Love God. You've been called by God. That's what he means, what he's saying. Let me say a bit about each in turn. Firstly, love for God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Paul could easily have said, we know that for those who trust God or depend on God. But the language he uses is language of love. It is intimate. It is affectionate. It is familial, it is relational, it is family language. When we feel weakness through suffering, when we are most perplexed or confused by our circumstances in the Christian life, all too easily, all too quickly, we can conclude that our relationship with God is broken or strained, that he does not love us, that he has turned away from us. And Paul wants to reassure us, and he does this again and again in Romans 8, that that is not true. All the way through Romans 8, he stresses our relationship with God as Christians. So how is it that all the achievements of Jesus' death are yours if you are a Christian? Yes, through the cross. But Paul writes, yes, through the cross. But he writes about it's through the indwelling Spirit, God living in you. So in your perplexity, your pain, God is living in you, in you. It's not even that God is beside you on the journey. He's in you. It is the most intimate of relationships, God himself living in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that indwelling spirit means you are a child of God and can call God the God of sovereign glory, Father, Daddy, Abba. It's not sentiment, is it? It's intimate. It's not sentiment we need when we are suffering. It's intimacy, it's love, it's closeness. Talk to your father. Go to your father. Now, I'm aware that human, and I'm sure Andy said this when he preached on the relational family language of Romans 8, that not all our human family relationships are good, but our relationship with our heavenly father is good. Father, 
It is intimate. It is love. It is close. Now, I <laughs> always uh, sense when I'm preaching on these verses in Romans 8, not the, the danger of being intentionally emotive or provocative, but the text of Romans 8, uh, impossibly, it's impossible not to be emotive or provocative. Often when someone dies, you hear the, uh, or the paper says, whatever, that they die surrounded by their family, with their family beside them, and that is a wonderful comfort for many people. That's the realm Paul is speaking in here. And he's saying to us, when you die, will you be surrounded by this family, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That is the family you want with you and beside you when you're suffering and struggling and dying. What an important question that is. Will you, when you die, be surrounded by that family? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And here in verse 28, Paul says, it's for those who love God. That is how Paul describes the Christian here. He could have said those who trust God, those who believe in him, but he doesn't. He says those who love God, because in our weakness and in our perplexity and in our pain, when we do not know why things are happening as they are, God wants you and he wants me to trust God. He does want that. But more than that, he wants us simply to love him. Just love him for who he is. Treasure your relationship with him. When I face the hardest things in my life with Sally, my wife whom I love, and the analogy is weak, and it's not meant to be sentimental, it is weak. It is my love for her, not my trust and confidence in her ability to do stuff that matters the most when you struggle. That's true, isn't it? It's my children's love for me that makes them depend on me, not what I can do for them when they struggle. And it is ultimately our love for God and Jesus Christ that holds us strong and stops us concluding that the circumstances we find ourselves in means that he loves us no less. And Paul picks up this in the last section of Romans 8 when he lists all that this world can throw at us. And he says, nothing, nothing can break that love if you are in the family of God. Love God. And there's a a powerful application perhaps for you from this part of Romans 8 if you are really suffering and struggling and you're groaning and the Holy Spirit is praying for you. What should you do? Love God, love God, love God, love God. Lastly, called by God. Paul says it three times in these verses. And uh, he says it in verses 29 and 30. And it's complex stuff. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And and there is time and place for wrestling with what some of these things mean. But remember what Paul is doing here. He's speaking about assurance for Christians in their perplexity and in their weakness. And what he says to us is, love God, love God, love him because you are in intimate relationship with him. But even beyond that and behind that, remember that you have been called by him. So out of all eternity, the sovereign God of history and of glory predestined you and called you, and when he called you, he justified you, and when he justified you, he glorified you. Behind your life as you sit in this room, the God of glory has called you to be his child. 
And we understand that behind the details of our lives and the struggles, there is intimate help, but there is sovereign, sovereign care and call. It is the God of glory calling sinful men and women to Christ and bringing them safely home to glory through the suffering and perplexity of this life. Those whom he predestined, he also called. If you're a Christian, these words are written of you and for you and to you. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And uh, if I could summarize that for you, if you're a Christian, I would say this, God has you. He has you. And nothing can break that relationship. Nothing can separate you from his love. Love him, for he has called you out of eternity to the endless end of eternity. And he will get you home to glory. Perhaps, though, for someone here, the call of God is effective. That's the word, I think, that best describes the call of God right now in someone's life in this room. It's the difference between listening to a sermon or listening to the gospel explained for years and it not really opening your eyes to see Jesus and lay hold of him. It's a difference between listening to a sermon and contemplating the Jesus, the man of history, and listening to a sermon and laying hold of him and his death for your salvation. It is the difference between listening to a sermon and contemplating that for the Christian there is help in life and contemplating the fact that God himself takes up residence inside your body and prays for you and in you when you groan. If that is what you are hearing for the first time, then you are hearing the effectual call of God on your heart and on your life. What is happening to you? Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What is happening to you? God is telling you. It's you. It's you. And if you hear that kind of stuff convicting your heart, don't turn away from him. Life, as you know and I know, is far too fragile and risky and fleeting and dangerous to play around with. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are deep and complex things that we have grappled with this morning. And we pray, Lord, that we would hold on to what we know as Christians, that in our weakness, And maybe now some of us really feel the weakness of living in a dying body, in a dying world that is indifferent to the Lord Jesus. In our weakness, you speak and say to us, there is help. The Spirit in us is praying for us. In accordance with the will of God, which is that all things in my life, tough things as well as pleasant things, bitter as well as sweet providences, work together for our good, which is to be made into the likeness of Jesus and brought home to everlasting glory. Help us to hold on to that which we know and to love you, for we are in your family. 
and you are our Father. And to remember that the God of all glory has called us out of eternity to eternity, behind our tiny lives, there is that great sovereign sweep of the effectual call of an almighty God. And if, Lord, we hear that call for the first time, or if the gospel is coming alive in our lives, thank you that we can now gather around the Lord's table and come to the cross where all this stuff was wrought for us through Christ's death and his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.